I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there with got you, got you. What got you there with Sean Delaney? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and today I sit down with performance expert, author, and all around a really interesting thinker, Steve Magnus. Now, I originally had Steve on the show over five years ago on episode 20, but Steve's back on to talk about what he's learned over the last five years, specifically around doing hard things. And this is a topic he's explored deeply, uh, even so deeply that he went to write a book, and the book is Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And that's one of the things we talk a lot about on this episode, is toughness, and the reasons a lot of people get the model of toughness wrong. It's not that old draconian, I'm going to be as hard as humanly possible. There's a new way to explore it that actually helps in better performance. So if you're interested in developing true toughness, improving your performance, and understanding what the elite units and teams actually do, then you are going to love this conversation with Steve Magnus. I am thrilled to tell you about my new online personal growth course called You Unleashed. You Unleashed is for those people looking to burst through the walls of their previous limitations and fears and tap into their greater potential, or what I call your You Unleashed self. This course is a culmination of the best things I've learned being a professional athlete, entrepreneur, investor, and spending thousands of hours sitting down with world-class performers on this podcast to uncover what you need to raise your potential to a new level. This course is going to give you clarity of what an extraordinary life looks like and who you need to become in order to achieve that life. Now, I'll provide you with the mindsets, behaviors, and actions you need to bring out your unleashed self. You'll uncover your deeper why, your values, and your life philosophy that will guide you moving forward. So the question is, why haven't you unleashed your full potential yet? You only get one shot at this life, so what are you waiting for? You're meant to become extraordinary. We all are. So if you're interested in stepping into your potential and cultivating the type of life you've been dreaming of, then check out my You Unleashed course by clicking below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. And because you listen to the podcast, I'm giving you 50% off the entire course for a limited time by using code WGYT. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed and use code WGYT for 50% off. Steve, welcome back to what got you there. How are you doing today? <laughs> Thanks a lot. I am so glad to be back. It's been a while, but glad to see you again. Yeah, I was just looking. It's it's been just over a week and five years since we first had you on on episode twenty. We we've, we've got a lot to cover uh, with the amount of things that you've learned over those five years. Uh, but I actually want to dive into first something kind of out of the ordinary, and it's around notebooks. And I know you're someone who keeps a ton of notebooks, and I'd love just to hear about your notebook process and the value it brings to you. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
I have too many notebooks. I mean, that's what it is. But in, in reality is there's something about writing by hand in a notebook that helps keeps my thoughts organized. So my system is a little old school, but essentially what I have is I have my, what I'll call my general ideas notebook, which is just insights, ideas, future projects, anything just goes into it. And then I have specific notebooks for every major prod, uh, like project I'm, I'm endeavoring on. So for example, every book gets a notebook. Whenever I say, all right, I have enough. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, I'm going to write a book about this subject or even thinking about it. It gets its own notebook. And then finally, I have a very small notebook that I take on walks because this is my solution. Um, I love, I, you know, I'm a runner. I love going on runs, but like as a writer, walks are like my, my cure all. Whenever I'm stuck, I go for a walk. Whenever I'm like mulling over, you know, an outline or a chapter or whatever, I go for a walk. And I hate carrying my my phone on the walks because it gets in the way of like thinking because I'm like any human being, I always start checking it. So my solution over the last couple of years has been a very small notebook with a, a, a small pen as well that I just carry with me. How many things need to be in the first notebook for you then to transition over to this is going to be a full-blown book? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really is this process of like moving from that general to specific. And what I would say is I need enough where I'm wrestling with the idea and I just keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it, where it's almost like, okay, I need to put this in another space in a notebook and in my mind. And that gives me... Maybe it's not even like this is going to be a book, but this is like, this is something that I care about deeply enough and that I've researched enough and I keep getting pulled back to it that I have the energy to wrestle with it and perhaps become a book. So it's really kind of by feel, but it's, it's, I love it because if my notebook, my kind of general notebook becomes all consumed with one thing for a while, that's generally my indicator that it's like, okay, I'm wrestling with this. I'm interested in this. It's time to actually deal with this and, and you know, um, get systematic about it. No, I love that. You and I actually have a somewhat similar process. I've got like the big notebook that's just basically collecting all of my thoughts, like you said, on a walk. It all, I'll categorize those and put them in there. But then when there's an idea, it's like you need to go further with this. That's when it, it gets its own. I, I ended up doing it into a, a document after that. Um, but but yeah, it's always funny to hear about that process. I, I actually want to deconstruct a little bit further because a lot of people might hear this and they might be like, okay, well, I need to carry a notebook. But there's things that you said, like categorizing your thoughts. And I'm wondering, like, what's the big underlying theme that the notebooks do for you? So I just don't want people taking away, all right, we need to carry a notebook. What does it do for you that the value is in that? Yeah. So I think that's important. And this is, there's, you know, maybe there's a little magic in, in writing by hand and notebooks and all that stuff. But I think it's really the lesson is figure out a system that allows you to organize your thoughts in a coherent way. Because now we live in this society where it's very easy to collect or have ideas and insights and like go deep on all this information, but we forget, I don't know, 90 plus percent of it. So my goal is to essentially use the notebooks as like a 
holding pattern, a wrestling spot for my brain. Mm -hmm. So I'm almost offloading it and saying, this is really important. Like this is something that I could use for something much bigger, like a book or whatever have you. This is an idea I want to deconstruct and understand. Mm -hmm. And that's where the notebooks come into hand. I almost see as like the notebooks are like my most important pieces. And then like any human being in, in this century, like I then go to Word documents and other things to, again, easier, maybe like outline and categorize things. But my notebooks are almost like my those nuggets that I don't want to let go and that I'm wrestling with. And I know that I can always kind of return to that space and be like, okay, this is where that is. This is the book I, I get. Another thing that is really helpful as well in the writing process is you're left with how your ideas have evolved from when you first said, okay, this is a topic I'm, I'm interested in to maybe, you know, again, when I'm almost done with the book and going back and reading through that is really helpful because other people who are going to consider, you know, the same topic are probably going through similar, um, you know, wrestling matches in their mind of like these things and trying to work them out. And it helps when you have this roadmap of your thought process and how you figured it out. Yeah, you mentioned the roadmap. Map. I'm always, uh, I'm always, and I admire the people who are really clear and they have clarity around these certain roadmaps. Right? It's not just following. All right, this is the thing you should be doing. They've got a roadmap, and you're very good at this. You've got clarity. I, I know this can be sometimes hard to answer right on the spot. Are there other things that you just have clarity on that have really helped you? Uh, I mean, you found value in any other key themes like that. Yeah. No, I think having clarity on most things that are important in your life is essential. So for example, um, on writing, I try and get very clear on who I'm writing this book for and what I'm trying to accomplish out of this. The other thing that I think when I think clarity, especially nowadays, is social media. As an author, I have to use social media or else my books would never sell. And there's there's some really good benefits of it. I've connected with wonderful people um, like yourself and others through various amounts of like the online world that couldn't happen before. But I have to be very clear on how I'm using social media because again, like any human being, I'm susceptible to picking up my phone or signing on to my computer and just endlessly scrolling and consuming and that might feel good for a moment, but in the long haul, it's almost like you just, I don't know, went on a binge and drank a lot and you're just kind of, your brain's hung over. So what with social media, I have like different, different reminders where I remind myself, what's the purpose of it? What am I trying to get out of it? If there's a purpose like, you know, for example, with a book launch where I'm going to be on social media a lot more, I try and be very clear on, okay, what's the time frame? How long am I going to push very hard on this book and spend you know, more hours than I'd like to on social media, for example? So I try and get, again, some clarity around it and some, bar- some constraints and barriers around it that uh, you know, prevents me from going off the rails. Yeah. I appreciate how much when you do something, when there's action, there's so much thought and intent behind it. I think that's just such, such a crucial piece. I've seen that again and again, and we can just call it the, the people who are, are doing exceptionally well in their field. Uh, they seem to be really clear on that. 
I'm actually curious because I know you've recently decided to make a huge life change for you um, to no longer be coaching. And I'm just curious what your process was like to get clarity to finally come to that decision. Um, it's, it's essentially like shedding your skin after a decade of wearing that suit. Uh, I'm just curious how you got to that. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, it was really, really tough. Because as you said, it's the skin you wear. It's the identity you carry around. I mean, it's also, uh, you know, in certain aspects, what you're known for uh, by various people. So, uh, you know, I don't want to overuse the word, but I, I really tried to get clear on what it is I was trying to accomplish right now, what it was that was best for my wife and I, and what we were trying to craft together, individually and together. And also kind of where my interest and, yeah, my interests lie. And I'm a big believer in, and this comes through hopefully clear in the new book, Do Hard Things, but I'm a big believer in taking in the information, sorting it out, listening to it, and then trying to find that clear path. So for example, I mentioned interests. I want something in my life that that like gives me that excitement, that interest where I'm just like, okay, let's do this thing. Let's keep going. And it's okay for that thing to change and evolve over time. And I think that was the key with me making this change is, although I still love coaching, although I still love working with athletes, there were certain aspects of it, like the administration part and other stuff that I had to do where I'm just like this kind of sucks and isn't like it's, it's consuming a large part of my life and my time. And I had to step back and be like, well, I might be missing out on X, Y, and Z. Am I freeing myself up space-wise to be able to pursue these other things that I don't have the time or capacity to do? And I think that's where it really came down to is again, getting clear on what mattered to me, getting clear on my values, getting clear on, um, again, what season of life I was about to be in and then aligning those with, okay, what is it, what is it that I want to do? And again, it wasn't easy, but you just try and figure it out and sort through it and then make the best decision that you can. Yeah. I, I appreciate you using what season of life are we in? Uh, and that, that's a framework I, I work off of often uh, to know things are going to change. Things are, are going to evolve just like the seasons do. One of the things I, I love about this podcast, these conversations and life in general is it's it's gray, right? It's not black and white. And so you were mentioning kind of getting to that realization that knowing that my interests are kind of going somewhere else. And for me, it's just like a deep intuitive sense, right? Like I can feel it in my gut. And so this is what I mean by this is gray and nuanced is, is, is it the same for you? Is it just like this internal knowing or just, I, cause I'm asking cause so many people want to see things on a spreadsheet. Um, or is it just like a deep knowing internally for you? Yeah, no. So this is, again, this is important is we have this external data, which is that spreadsheet, that logic, all that stuff, which is good. It's fine. Like you need to go through that process. I did it as well. Like, you know, what was I giving up? The, the benefits, finances, all those things. But I think there also is that deep internal intuitive gut feeling. And you have to learn how to listen to that and to understand if it's real or not. Like just because we have a feeling doesn't mean that feeling is, you know, correct, but it does mean that we should probably explore and understand it. 
So whenever I have that intuitive gut feeling, it's almost like that. It's almost like an aha moment where it's like, okay, like I should pay attention to this and sit with this and explore it and see if this is like real and if I should listen to it. And that's what I do. So whenever I have that gut feeling, it's almost, again, it's that light bulb that goes off that says, oh, okay, I need to explore this because this is pulling me in a different direction and maybe for a good reason. So let's, you know, let's see what the, where this leads. Yeah. Where, where this leads, you, you mentioned even your latest interest and then your, your newest book, do hard things. I was looking back at just your career, even back in high school, right? Like one of the best uh, mile runners in the country, some of the work you've done as a coach, some of your writing for you, is there a golden thread that still runs through everything you do today? I think ultimately, yes. I mean, it, here's what I've come to learn um, over the last couple of years is that the different pursuits that we take or that others take, they're just, you know, the thing we're doing. There are so many commonalities between those pursuits, whether they be in athletics or academics or business or life or whatever have you is performance is performance to me. So I'm just taking the kind of same skill set, which is how do I help people get better? <laughs> how do I help people navigate what they're struggling with? You know, the things that they care about. In my early life, that centered all around how to help people run faster or perform better on athletic fields and tracks and all that stuff. And that's how it was in my own life. But the same ideas that apply there, apply in my writing life. They apply in helping executives. They help apply everywhere. And that's that's where I think that, that thread is, is I'm still kind of doing the same thing, which is either in writing and coaching and helping others. It's like, okay, we're all struggling with these, these items, you know, doubts, insecurities, maybe doing difficult things, anxiety, what have you burnout like how do we navigate them is the where is there a way to figure that out and writing actually is almost an extension of that i almost see it maybe this is a better answer is i almost see it as like you have that one-on-one -on -one personal connection and coaching which is great it's phenomenal i think that's important i still have that aspect in some areas of my life but you're helping one person writing is almost like you lose a little bit of that connection but now you're helping tens and hopefully hundreds of thousands of people. So it's almost like in my life, I try and look at and make sure I have, you know, all ends of that spectrum, which is the broad helping lots of people. And also then the narrow of like just getting that fulfillment of helping people on an individual basis. And that goes for whatever their pursuit is. I like that lens you look through helping the, the large amounts, but then also those deep connections as well. I think that's just a, a helpful reminder to not get too swayed too far one way or the other. Uh, but, but I'm actually really intrigued about the latest book, Do Hard Things. And I'm curious for you, I think we just set a good framework of the intentionality you put towards different projects. So talk me through like how this project even came to be and when the light bulb really went off for you that this is a full-blown book and then you dive all in on. Yeah. So it was kind of this, I mean, it's a topic I've been thinking about since, I don't know, I was probably 15 years old and competing as a, as a runner, because what is running, but figuring out how to, you know, 
perform at your best when your brain and your inner voice is telling you to slow down and stop. So it's something I've thought about for a while. And then in coaching, again, I started to notice, again, we have some old school methods to developing quote unquote toughness that I was like, oh, this doesn't quite work. Like these ideas are a little off. And then more so, I think when it formed into a book is over the last couple of years in my own life, going through, you know, various struggles and difficult things in life, as we all do outside of the athletic field, I was like, you know what? Like we all go through these items, these struggles, these doubts, these insecurities, these wanting to quit, figuring out, you know, if we should quit something or not that ego that kind of tells you that you're kind of useless and not good at things like everybody has it and to me it was all I saw, a lot of what i saw out there for advice especially in the us and especially in sport but also in the workplace culture was i think flat out stuff that didn't work very well which was you know hey you just got to grind you got to grit your tre- teeth and just push through it. And although I think that sometimes is needed, like there are moments where you just have to say, okay, this is really going to suck. Like, let's just grind through. That's not the only solution. And there's a lot more nuance to it. And that's what I wanted to explore in this book is like, okay, is there a different lens we can look at resilience, toughness, grit, whatever you want to call all these things and that might be a little bit more helpful. I'm wondering how how do you define then your new model of toughness and resilience? Yeah, so the way I I think there's all these words that kind of are similar but a little bit different. So I just say, okay, let's just talk in real speak and just call okay this thing that happens when we feel discomfort, anxiety, uncertainty, we're not sure what do we do. And to me, the new model is this: is it's not just like grind through; it's feeling that discomfort, then how do we create the space to navigate through it? And that word navigate is really important because it implies there are many different ways to get through difficult things, but we have to have that space to explore and see what one is best. And if we have that space and then accompany the last part of this kind of, okay, toughness is also things that align with your values, your meaning, your purpose, et cetera. So the reason I include that last part is values, meaning, purpose is because I think that is that often is that North Star that says, hey, this, this activity I, I am taking under, it's really difficult, but it has a lot of meaning behind it. So I'm going to push or like, you know, go well beyond my means and I want to finish it or complete it. Uh, but on the other, yeah. on the other hand, there are things that we try and be tough at that we should actually just quit yeah. because they don't align with our values or our meaning or our purpose. And we're just working really hard. And yeah, we might be being tough, but it's not the tough decision. It's the dumb decision. We should devote that energy somewhere else that aligns with what our kind of goals and values are. Yeah, Steve, thinking through my own life, that that last part, tying back to your your values, your purpose, for me, 
has been foundational over the last few years in understanding that. Like I couldn't put words correctly earlier in my life of the things that I could actually persist through the most on is because they were deeply aligned with literally like my biggest purpose, my values. And now I can understand certain things that just sucked and like we're just be it's like destroying my soul i, I didn't realize it was like trying to power through and so i think that's such an an important part of all this um so i'm just so appreciative that you added that in i i do want to get your take though on navigating that fine line between like insanely hard and not hard enough i, I know once again this is gray there's going to be no perfect answers for this but can anyone get to let's call it like the elite elite level in we'll just stick with sports for this without going to like an insanely obsessive, unhealthy level, like like earlier on, is, is that so possible? That, that is a very good question. And I think I'm going to give you the, the, the answer no one likes with, which is it depends. I think for some people, yes, it's entirely possible. I think actually for, for many people, it's more possible than they think. And often, and I've seen this with, with various world-class runners in particular, but often early in their career, they think, oh, I need to be obsessive and like go to this nth degree. And there's some bit of truth to that. Like you obviously have to be, you have to care, right? Obviously you have to, you know, want it and be motivated and all that, all that stuff. I think it was, there was actually, I'm going to butcher this quote a little bit, but a good friend who is um, also was a coach for like Nolan Ryan and helped Tom Brady out, Tom House, put it, I forget the exact wording, but he said something uh, like elite athletes need to be like nicely obsessive or like productively obsessive. There was some like caveat beforehand. And I think that is what we need to get at is if you look at, you know, from my previous work, the work around passion, they delineated it into you can either have obsessive passion or harmonious passion. And both are incredibly driven. But the harmonious passion essentially is the kind that says like, yes, I care about this thing a lot. I'm going deep into it. But I'm still just a little bit in control. And I think that's the key here is when that obsession becomes out of your control and it becomes almost like an addiction mm. where you where you almost you know need to do it instead of want to do it that's when things go awry and i do think that you can become very elite even reach the top of the world with that more kind of productive passion or that productive you know nice obsession we'll call it um without going off the rails, but it's an incredibly tricky balance. Yeah, constantly, constantly teetering back and forth. Uh, I'm wondering for you, it's always helpful for me just to find models of people that, that are doing what, what I'm trying to work towards. Is there anyone that you used as really good models in terms of their relationship and how they approach toughness, even a coach or an athlete? Yeah, so although I don't know him, I love I love Steve Kerr, the, the basketball coach, because like he has this wonderful leadership style where if you look at his values, one of them is competing, which is we're trying to win. You know, things are win or lose. There are winners and losers in life like that in, in sport. But he also creates the space for doing difficult things 
and the environment by creating the sense of security and autonomy and the sense that the players have a voice and a choice that allows them to do those things. And I think you see that in other very good coaches. Um, Pete Carroll is another example, the Seattle uh, football coach. But <laughs> he has, again, always compete days. But he also has like this idea of, okay, how do we develop these people so it's not just, oh, we're doing difficult things, but I'm creating the same space. Going back years, John Wooden was a great example. So I love, I love some of these coaching models that go against kind of the grain of maybe our, our traditional or even our, our Bill Belichick's of the world, to use the New England Patriots coach, where it's like very authoritarian and very like, I'm in charge to see other coaches who are essentially saying, hey, we know this crucible is going to be tough, but I'm going to support you and I'm going to help you figure out how to train and create this resilience so that when the game's on the line, you're going to show up in a place where you're performing and playing to win and not in a place where you're afraid or scared to lose or doing it out of fear, which we know doesn't work very well. Yeah, I would like to even go a little further on that that safety element, but the the people closest to me know that I am a huge fan of Coach P. Carroll, um, what he's been able to do. And I just have to tie this in because you mentioned John Wooden yeah. as well. Carroll says his coaching philosophy, the reason he stepped back and reflected on what it was, was he learned that actually from John Wooden. And he says if it wasn't for Wooden, he would have never put that puzzle piece together that allowed him to have his system built on competition. Um, so I, I just love that. Even you, you can go back and, and look at Carroll's early days and a light bulb moment for him in addition to Wooden was Abraham Maslow and self-actualization. Mm. And he wants to bring out the best in each individual. And then that ties back to the team. Um, so I'm a huge fan of Carroll. But but go a little bit further on just the safety and the environment. You said both Kerr and Carroll are good at that. Can you just expand on that a bit more? Yeah. So one of the things that is very clear in the research, and this goes beyond sport, this goes in workplace, everywhere, parenting even. Um, <laughs> and it makes sense if you think about it, is that when we feel secure, we are able to perform at our best. We are able to persist longer, to handle difficult things, all of that good stuff. And people say, whenever I say this, people say secure, like you mean like safety, all this stuff. But it's a, a particular kind of security or safety, which is, you know, you're on this team. I care about you. I want the best for you. You're going to do difficult things. I'm going to ask you to do difficult things, but I'm going to put you in the place where you can take appropriate risks and sometimes fail. And that's the key on security is we often do ourselves a disservice because we create this whole thing around failure and losing and et cetera, et cetera, which essentially makes people afraid of failure, afraid of losing. And when you do that, that puts people in a place of they're not performing in a secure place where they can take risks. They're performing in a place of, oh, I don't want to screw up. If I screw up, I'm going to get yelled at. And there's some very clear evidence in, again, the psychology research, which essentially says when you do that, you prime people to operate out of a place of threat where their, their bodies and brains are more likely to um, 
you know, experience a stress response that includes cortisol, which often puts us in that kind of flight stage versus if you put people in a place where they feel secure, they can take on things and see things as a challenge, even if they fail. And that puts us in a much more productive uh, place for um, performing at our best. And actually, just maybe to tie it all together, there's some fascinating research that's been done in professional rugby players where they've looked at if they've had coaches come in and either kind of, you know, berate the players afterwards and say like, Hey, look what you did wrong. Like, why did you screw up, et cetera, right after the game? Or did they have coaches who came in and said, Hey, here's everything you did, right? You know, here are all the good things. Now let's look at a couple of things that you can correct and like learn from it, move on, go forward. Right. And the people who do the latter, which is like the human being thing to do, they have an increase in testosterone, a decrease in cortisol, and they play better the next game, you know, a week later. The people who just got berated and said, hey, look how you screwed up right after a loss, cortisol goes through the roof, testosterone goes down, performance a week later and a game is worse. So again, to me, it gets that. How do you create the environment that it's not being like always positive, but it's we're in this together. We're trying to learn to grow. You have the security where sometimes you can fail, but we're going to adapt and get better from it instead of that fear-based authoritarian control environment, which again, puts you performing out of a place of threat. Yeah, Steve, you do a really good job, especially in the book, Do Hard Things, of tying in an example like the rugby story, but then actually how the brain works, what's going on inside the brain, which I'm always really appreciative of. You you just mentioning and just describing all this, it makes me think of a a story back uh, in my college days playing lacrosse. Uh, So I had an assistant coach at North Carolina. And uh, I, I was a starter, but you know, there was kind of like that fear, like, all right, are you going to lose your spot if, if you're not performing well? And he did something. It was such a small little gesture, but completely changed it. And this ties completely into giving me safety. And he basically just reaffirmed. He's like, your spot's secure. You, you can, you can miss, you can make some mistakes and you're, it's going to be okay. And believe me, this guy was coach Pat Myers. He's probably listening to this total hard ass, like six thirty Monday morning. He was just relentless on us, but he gave me that little bit of safety, just completely unlocked me just having that little bit. So if you're a coach, if you're running the organization, don't ever underestimate the impact, something like that, those little things can have on those players. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, so thanks for, for making that clear and then bringing back that, um, that story in my brain here. But one thing I I would really like to know about, because I'm sure we're hearing this and people are probably like, all right, but is this possible in like certain really tough environments? So I'm thinking about the Navy SEALs and you hit on this in the book. So I'm, I'm wondering how the Navy SEALs actually develop toughness versus sorting out who can do it. I think you do a really good job making that clear. Yeah. So we, again, we have this idea and it often comes from the military and, mil- and Navy SEALs that the best way to create toughness is like throw people into the deep end of the, the pool and see if they can swim. And the Navy SEALs, to some degree, do this, right? They have Hell Week. They have their selection, which is incredibly difficult. I mean, you talk to people who have been through it, and it's incredibly difficult. But we forget that that is largely a sorting mechanism. It is the version of the high schooler taking the SAT or ACT, saying like, oh, do you have kind of the baseline skills that what it will take to 
to handle this college, right? In this case, do you have the baseline skills to handle being in the Navy SEALs? But it's not a development mechanism. If you look at how the military, special forces, et cetera, develops toughness or resilience, or essentially for them, it's how do you keep your mind steady and on when chaos is going on all around you? Um, (laughs) They do it through a very different method, which is essentially first they teach, they give you the skills. The military is the uh, the nation's, the U.S. military is the nation's largest um, uh, provider or, or of sports psychologists. So they do that for a reason, and they have all these programs set up. Every single branch has this program essentially based on various mental strength, which is how do we teach people to handle difficult things? How do we teach people to cope? with the stress that they're going to figure out, teach them first. Then they do put them in difficult situations. They'll go through survival training, various, you know, real kind of real world simulations that are difficult. But then afterwards they review them, learn from them and adapt. And I think this is this is the key here is it's not throwing people in the deep end. It's systematically providing people with the toolkit to handle difficult things then putting them in situations to essentially inoculate them against stress. But it's it's stress that they are now prepared for, that they expect, that they have some tools to handle. And then it's reviewing and learning from those so that they can say, okay, maybe I lost my mind a little bit during this, or maybe I freaked out a little bit during this. How do I get better? How do I, you know, improve on these skills and apply them in a different way? So it's a very different mindset than I think the old school military version, maybe the movie version that we have stuck in our head. You mentioned they are able to remain mindful when chaos is ensuing all around them. So that that could be actually in a, in a real world war type scenario. But what about the athlete when they, they're, they're starting to lose the score or the uh, say they've got a lead, they're starting to lose it, all chaos is ensuing. Are there any tools or ways we should think about that um, that, that you've learned? Yeah. So, you know, I love the word mindfulness because it's kind of in vogue, but I like to bring it outside of just like this meditation mindfulness areas that it really is about learning how to, in the midst of chaos and stress, not fighting it, but to almost like create the space again to be able to say, okay, this is all happening. Where do I direct my attention? What do I focus on? What should my inner voice kind of be? Are there various things? And there are. In the book, I go over a ton of them. But to give you, you know, maybe a little spice of it is, <coughs> you know, I'll use the military example again. If you talk to, I talk to pilots uh, in the military who practice what to hap- what happens if they're, you know, helicopter or plane is getting shot at or it's going down or what have you. Well, they teach them to direct their attention in certain areas or in certain ways that gets them back on board. So, for example, you know, if you're a pilot, it's you have all these alarms buzzing and beeping all over the place. What do you do? You focus on, you shift your focus to, okay, what actually matters? What are the two or three key things that I need to pay attention to in this moment that shifts your awareness to, okay, I'm going to focus only on these things. 
And this is all that matters. And I'm going to lose this periphery, but it allows you to perform in that moment, right? In athletic standpoint, you know, often what we deal with is like the negative spiral that comes with losing or fatigue or what have you, which accompanies an inner voice that tells us that, you know, we aren't good enough, that we can't perform, that we're screwing up, that we're missing the shot, whatever have you. Again, there's various tactics to get that almost your brain back online by changing your inner voice. So changing how you talk to yourself, going from instead of using first person to second or third person. So instead of I've got this to you've got this or Steve's got this, like that subtle shift will essentially kick your brain back online and be like, oh, okay. Like, you know, we don't have to spiral. The other thing I think with our inner voice that is fascinating, and you see this in a lot of sports, specifically if you watch, you know, tennis, uh, professional tennis players, is before shots, sometimes they'll they'll talk out loud to themselves. Mm -hmm. And you're like, why in the world are you talking to yourselves out loud? Well, it turns out, again, some of the very recent psychology kind of postulates that we start with an outer voice when you're when we're young and then that voice moves inside so when you're two or three most of your vo what you say is like all external and then as you get to four five six seven etc it goes internal more and more so researchers think that when we talk out loud to ourselves it's almost like we're going back to that primitive state which again can kind of dislodge our brain from that freak out spiral and say, oh, okay, yeah, I should listen to this voice that's coming in, even though you're saying it. It's almost like you're hearing it from a friend and it can get you back in that space just momentarily where you can get back in control and not spiraling out of it. Yeah, you, you brought up some really interesting research. That, that's why I lo love your work. There, there's, uh, there's so many interesting uh, research projects or science-based facts uh, that you bring to light. One of them, though, is around psychological distance. And you were saying a few minutes ago, like I, for me, I might be using Sean, like specifically saying Sean, you bring up how Batman um, can actually help. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Yes. I would this love for you to bring of, this light. I love this, this one. Yeah, this was one of my favorite studies because it's so crazy, um, but true. It's they took, again, school-aged children and um, had them, I forget the exact task, but had them you know, do some difficult tasks and persevere on things. And they just changed how they talked to themselves. They gave some group saying, hey, you know, say, you know, you've got it. Another group like, you know, Johnny or Jimmy or Susie's got it. And then another group was like, you know, talk to yourself on like how Batman would do it. You know, like imagine yourself as if you're Batman and some variation of that. And it's so weird. But the people who had this like almost Batman inner voice and Batman framing around it. It's almost like it gave that kid that evidence of like, oh, Batman would persevere. He would figure out a way how to do this. So I'm going to do this. And it almost gave this like instant reminder model that I think is incredibly important. And we do this in other aspects of our life, maybe not with Batman, right? But how often have you thought of someone else that maybe someone you admire, or maybe a friend that you admire and you think like, how would, or, you know, often it's like, how would my dad handle this situation? Right. If you really respect your father or what have you. 
And what those are is it provides, provides that model, which creates that psychological distance, which again, frees you up where instead of just getting stuck on me, 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 like, woe is me, this thing is spiraling out of control. It gives you this another path, this other example, this distance kind of separate example where again, your brain can kind of come back online and be like, oh yes, you know, my coach would handle it this way. My parent, you know, my dad or mom would handle it this way, or this person that I admire or look up to, even if I don't know them, you know, Steve Carroll might coach it this way. So it creates just enough distance where it allows us to again, handle the difficult thing. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons that having great models is, is so important. It's it's one of the reasons I, I love biographies and I do these deep dives called distillations on just a single individual, because when I'm going through something challenging, I, I literally visualize a round table of the specific mentors I want and bouncing back ideas. How would they handle this situation? So it like, it illuminates me with new insights, but then also those times where like, I just need some added inspiration. Um, it, it really helps there. And, and then it's so, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's why I'm going to interject. Sorry, but I love, I'm so glad that you do that because I, for your listeners, I think that's such a valuable point because I forget where I read it, but in researching this whole topic, um, some writer, it was in some book again, forget where it was, but said this and it was beautiful. It encapsulates that. The, the things that you read become the voices in your head, hmm. which is essentially the information we consume becomes our models. So if you're going deep on, I don't know, whoever it is, Abraham Lincoln, and you're reading biographies on him and his letters and all that stuff, you're essentially, when you're reading and consuming that or listening on a podcast or an audiobook, part of your brain is going into that, that, that world and saying, hmm, like, how would I handle this? Like, oh, what if I was in these situations? And it provides this wonderful framework that is allows us to reach beyond our own experience in our own life and give us various different ways to handle difficult things. So, you know, this is why I'm a big fan of, of biographies and like understanding various people for the exact reason that you, uh, you know, illuminated there, which is it does. It provides different models, which we don't get in our own life. So if you're I don't know, someone sitting in the middle of nowhere, Texas, like you can still learn something, you know, from someone far away, from someone that has no relation to you or whatever you're doing. And I think that's brilliant. So that's why, again, reading, listening, consuming information, it provides that other voice or that other model that we can pull from that doesn't have to come from our own lived experience. Yeah, absolutely. Just such, just such a helpful way to go about things. Uh, I am wondering how you think through going for that like internal discomfort into actual action, right? Like we all face that internal struggle. What have you seen for the people that take that internal struggle and actually are able to follow that up with productive action? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, is starting off with the right framework and the right appraisal is that if we can, if we can realize in the book, I call this embrace reality. Hmm. Which is, if you can embrace that discomfort, understand that, yes, it's going to be difficult. Like, yes, this might be uncomfortable, but still go towards that and just kind of, again, not react to it, but respond to it, which means like, explore it. Go in with the explorer's mindset. You see people not only be able to handle it better, 
but also be, you know, come out of it learning and adapting and growing. And actually, this isn't in the book, but in the the recent work, re- weeks, because this study just came out that I think was fascinating, got at this, is they took people who were, um, they took people and had them tackled like the difficult topics to, of today in today's like crazy political environment, like everything from abortion to gun control to voting rights to all, everything. And they, these psychologists took all these people and said, hey, you're going to, we're going to pair you with someone different who has an opposing view. And when we want you to talk to them. And when they just talked to them, the, the control group just argued and went and it was a mess, right? And they took people and then they framed it differently. Half the group, they said, hey, I want you to learn from the other person. Half the group, we said, you know what? Your only goal is to embrace the discomfort of having this conversation. The people who they said, hey, go learn from it, they didn't actually, you know, when they looked at the data, A, they didn't take much away from it. A, they did, B, they didn't see it as a positive experience. And, you know, they didn't learn from it. They didn't grow in anything. The people that they said, hey, this is going to be really difficult. This is going to be a tough conversation, but we want you to embrace that, sit with that, and like go towards that uncomfortableness. Those people actually, again, rated that conversation as more productive. They were able to find even a little bit of semblance of common ground and understanding of the other person, even if they didn't agree with their views. And like, again, they also tended to actually learn and grow from it. Maybe not update their views fully, but they had a new, they came away with a new perception and understanding. Yeah. And I think, again, that gets at how we frame this stuff is so incredibly important and it, it, it goes a long way. I think it also ties back to the word you use that's very helpful is to navigate this. Right, like this is an ongoing navigation. I just think that's a really helpful reminder. One thing I'm intrigued because you said they can go through the the challenges, but you can adapt, you can learn, you can grow from this. And some of that made me think of that you bring up in the book is the the free solo climber, Alex Honnold. And I, I would love to know what they learned about overcoming very f- challenging type things that could drive up your fear by studying his brain. Um, so Alex Honnold is a legend in rock climbing, more specifically in free soloing. So climbing without a rope. Um, he's got a, a great documentary, Free Solo, about climbing the 3,000, basically flat uh, rock face El Capitan. But uh, Steve, I'll, I'll let you jump in here and just talk about what we can learn about growth through studying his brain. Yeah, so I love this because it's just fascinating. So again, a, a scientist... stuck Alex Honnold in an fMRI fMRI machine to study his brain, to look at what's happening, and then presented him with all of these pictures, images, videos that are essentially designed to evoke fear or disgust or some sort of like extreme emotional reaction. And they're videos of, again, extremely scary things, extremely gross things. And in the typical human, what happens is our kind of emotional processing and fear center in our brain, which is the amygdala and other places, light up, even when we see the image, because our brain goes, oh, this is kind of messed up. Like, there might be a threat here. We need to be aware and, like, you know, sound the alarm. In Honold, what happened is that area, essentially, all these, they show all these 
threatening things and the area doesn't light up. Okay, it stays silent. Other areas of the brain around the prefrontal cortex, others kind of light up. And what this tells us <laughs> is that our sensitivity to threats is different in various people. And if you look at other research, it's also malleable. So we can train to turn that dial up or down based on whether we see something as a threat and our brain, our amygdala goes crazy. Because when our amygdala goes crazy, essentially we sound the alarm and our executive functioning, our rational side of the brain kind of gets turned down and no longer goes on. The interesting part though, is that it's not like Honold has no response to threat. If you watch Free Solo, there was a great example in this is the first time he goes out to try and climb, you know, El Capitan. He starts climbing, starts climbing. Then he throws in the towel. He quits the first day. And he says, I forget the exact quote. It's in the book, but he says something along like, you know, the lines of no, like, you know, I'm, I'm like scared. This sucks. I can't do this. Hmm. Something, you know, similar to that. So he does have that fear response, but it's tuned to when he actually needs it. So he's in tune to saying, today is not my day. Like, yes, I could climb this thing, but today is not, not my day. You know, he talked in that moment, he talked about there's too many people watching me. Like I feel because everyone's watching, watching him, he felt that fear. He felt that threat. So what does he do? He goes in, they reevaluate, they shift some of the cameras away so that, yes, they're still filming, but not everyone's right on top of them. They adjust. He gets in a better mind space mind space, and then he's able to do the thing. So to me, it's this wonderful example of like, yeah, Alex Honnold is a freak of nature and probably has some of this to some degree, you know, inbuilt, but it's also the result of years and years of practice and preparation. And he still feels the fear every once in a while. It's just when it really needs to be listened to versus, you know, all the time. Yeah, I remember a few years ago coming across, I think I made a Harvard Business Review um, interview with him. It might have been this, one of the ones that you also uh, discussed. And he basically says that, uh, talking about the building blocks. And he goes, I didn't start out day one trying to free solo El Capitan. He was like, I started on a tiny little wall. It's like, yes, these are all building blocks. And to, to talk about what you keep saying is this is growth. This is progress. We learn, we adapt, we fail, and we grow from that. W one final thing I, I want to touch on here uh, is around confidence. And one of the things that you bring up that's really important is that confidence needs evidence. It needs to be earned. And I think that's one of the things we get wrong a lot. We think that all of these people we look to just have confidence all the time. And they started with confidence. And I would love to just hear your thoughts on confidence and how it needs evidence. Yeah. So this is one of the big things that I think is very important message. And that Alex Honnold story you mentioned actually gets at this perfectly. He needed to build the vast array of evidence that he could try and attempt El Capitan. And he still had doubts, but he had to build that over years and years and years. And that's what it's all about. When we think of confidence, we often think of, oh, I need to fake it. Like I need to show up. I need to just, or if we're a coach or a, a teacher or a leader, we say, oh, I need to compliment people and tell them like, this is great. Well, what the science and psychology clearly shows is that that only works if we've done something difficult or done something where we stretched our limits or practiced enough, where essentially our brain says, oh, yeah, that's right. 
like we should be confident. We've put in the work. It's almost like we need to accumulate enough evidence to give our brain the permission to say that, yes, they are prepared. So it's not about walking around all the time with this false bravado. And actually that false bravado act often backfires because if we don't have you know confidence that comes from evidence, if we just fake our way through things, then the moment we get in that, that, that you know, crucible, the challenging thing, and it actually becomes difficult, our brain's more likely to freak out because it realizes it's like, hey, wait a minute, Steve. You don't have the you don't have the capabilities to do this thing. You don't have the ability to handle this difficult thing. So it just spirals out of control. So the best thing you can do is prepare with diligence and intent. And if you do that over the long haul, you're going to thrive. Yeah, good model to work off of. Steve, you've given us some great snippets here from the new book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Uh, of course, it's going to be linked up in the show notes, um, and we'll make sure we, we give the listeners just a few other ideas of ways they can stay connected with you in a minute. But I would love to know if you could do this, right? Like sit down, long-form interview, conversation, just getting the insights and wisdom behind someone you admire, dead or alive, who would you love to get to sit down with? Oh man. So this is, I would love to sit down with Abraham Lincoln because I think he's such a fascinating study because he was a guy who essentially suffered from depression for most of his life and had some mental health issues and still was the guy who figured out how to navigate our country's most difficult moment. And he did it with like this hope for the future of like, hey, we're going to get through this. We're going to free slaves, et cetera. But this like realism in the moment where it's just like, I'm in a war. My country is falling apart. How do we win this and get it back together? So to me, that is like utter brilliance and clarity. And I just, I think it would be fascinating. Oh yeah. He's an absolutely fascinating character, but Steve, this, this has been too awesome for me. Uh, I love this getting to explore your work, your books. Uh, where else do you want the listener staying connected though? I know you've got a lot of moving pieces, uh, podcast newsletter, um, everything will be linked up, but anywhere you want them directly going. Yeah. So, you know, anywhere you can get the book, you can check me out on social media. It's all at Steve Magnus. And as you said, the newsletter at thegrowtheq.com is the best way to stay up to date. It's free weekly newsletter. And, you know, I just want to thank you, Sean, for this conversation. It's been fantastic and I've really enjoyed it. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.